1: Hi there, I'm Shannon Rice, part of the podcast team here at C-SPAN. We wanted to use the afterwards feed while the program takes a holiday break and share one of our newest podcasts about books. This program is a bi-weekly podcast about the nonfiction book publishing industry, with insider interviews, news, information about bestsellers and trends, current book reviews, as well as a look at books featured on C-SPAN's Book TV. Remember to follow about books so you never miss an episode. Afterwards, we'll be back publishing in this feed on January 8th.
2: On About Books, we delve into the latest news about the publishing industry with interesting insider interviews with publishing industry experts. We'll also give you updates on current nonfiction authors and books, the latest book reviews, and we'll talk about the current nonfiction books, featured on C-SPAN's Book TV. And welcome to the About Books program and podcast. In this episode, we'll talk with longtime New York Times book review editor Pamela Paul. We'll look at some of the notable books by the New York Times, and we'll also talk to her about her most recent book, "A 100 Things We've Lost to the Internet. But let's start with this week's publishing industry news and the two top items involved the Cuomo brothers. Former Governor Andrew Cuomo was ordered to turn over his recent book proceeds to the New York State Attorney General's office. Multiple reports show that he used state resources to produce the book, American Crisis Leadership Lessons from the COVID-19 Pandemic. It's estimated that the proceeds amount to about $5 million. In other book slash Cuomo News, HarperCollins, announced that they will not publish a forthcoming book by former CNN host Chris Cuomo. It was planned for 2022. The book was entitled Deep Denial. It was going to be a look at the Trump administration and the COVID-19 pandemic. CNN terminated Mr. Cuomo earlier in December for his involvement in public relations efforts to assist his brother in the wake of sexual harassment and assault allegations levied against the former New York governor. Now, in other news, best-selling novelist Anne Rice has died at the age of 80. Ms. Rice was the author of over 30 books. She sold about 150 million copies internationally. And, of course, she's best known for her 1976 novel, Interview with the Vampire, that was later adapted into a movie. Also in the news, author Reginald Dwayne Betts is the recipient of a MacArthur Genius Grant. He plans on putting 1,000 micro-libraries in prisons across the country. Now, Mr. Betts was in prison for nine years for a carjacking when he was 16. The first of these libraries that he has planned will be in the cell Malcolm X occupied in the 1940s at Norfolk Prison in Massachusetts. And according to NPD Bookscan, print book sales dropped just a little bit for the week ending December 4th. Adult nonfiction f- sales fell for a second consecutive week, just down 2%, but they remain up close to 6% for the year. Just a reminder, during the annual holiday period, about a quarter of all books are sold. 750 million printed books were sold in the United States in 2020. Well, one of the new books of 2021 is this one, 100 Things We've Lost to the Internet. The author is Pamela Paul. She joins us now on About Books. Pamela Paul, of course, is the longtime editor of the New York Times Book Review. Ms. Paul, your book, is this a lament
1: um, it's a lament. It's a complaint. It's a love letter. Um, I think it's a teeny bit of a call to action if I can use that um, somewhat annoying phrase. Um, it's a reminder really of what life used to be like before the internet, before we constantly lived in kind of a very rapid fast forward motion that I think is causing all of us a little bit of cognitive and emotional whiplash. Um, so it's a rewind and it's a sort of looking back and saying, hey, remember all these little things that we used to do before we were online all the time? Remember how we used to get places and meet people and what it meant to know someone as opposed to follow someone? So it's really a kind of look back, it's a cataloging of all those things from the before times.
2: And what are some of those things, as you write, that we achingly miss?
1: Well, I think it's different for everyone, right? I mean, some of the things that I achingly miss, I'm a paper-based person. Um, I do achingly miss um, lots of things made out of dead trees, um, like local newspapers, which I think happen to be really important to um, democracy. And uh, when it comes to books, uh, for book authors, it means you get more than maybe two or three or four book reviews in your home country, but instead you used to get you know 30 or 40 uh, because all those local newspapers used to have these things we call book critics um, and book editors and no longer do. So a lot of the things that I lament are very book centric. Um, I imagine some of uh, the audience here uh, will feel the same aches and pangs. And some of them, you know, are particular to me. Um, I miss, for example, the ability. Well, I guess probably a lot of people miss this, but I miss the ability to be in one place at one time without the feeling that there was a horde of people um, maybe bought some of them, um, sending me notifications, upvotes, downvotes, um, likes, slacks, texts, emails through four different email accounts, sort of all there, you know, um, right uh, in my pocket at any given time so that I feel like my sort of attention span is constantly fragmented. And then I am in a ceaseless game of whack-a-mole, just trying to be like, okay, I've got that, I've got that, I've got that, I've got that. What was I doing? I miss just doing what I was doing. And
2: it, it does take a little bit of discipline to read the New York Times book reviews on Sunday now, doesn't it?
1: I think it's a little bit harder for all of us to focus. I do think our attention span, it's one of the chapters in the book. Another thing that's lost is patience. I think that, you know, we have gotten used to lots of things trying to get our attention, and they've gotten very good at it. And so getting our attention means getting it quickly. And if something takes a little bit of a you know, runway um, to get going, we often lose patience because we have become acclimated, habituated, maybe even in some cases addicted to sort of something that delivers in three seconds. And obviously um, a full print newspaper um, and even just the book review section alone doesn't do that all the time.
2: New York Times book review celebrated its 125th anniversary this year. You've been the editor since 2013 Since 2013, what are some of the major changes that you've gone through?
1: well a lot of things have happened um, at the book review that have changed it uh substantially the book review of course you know fundamentally we do the same thing which is that we review the best of the books that are coming out we review the entire landscape of books and that's something very different from what most news organizations do most news organizations sort of see the big books and they cover those big books but what we do is we actually have a full staff and so it's time and labor intensive go through all the books that are out there and then determine which ones most merit coverage. And so that's the way in which we can um, discover voices that might not be the most obvious ones. And, and it it pays off when, for example, someone like um, Gurnott wins the Nobel Prize and everyone else is saying, who is that? Well, the book review reviewed six of his 10 books over um, the course of his career. So that sort of fundamentally hasn't changed Everything else pretty much has. Um, And speaking of the Internet, obviously everything we do is mindful of the fact that most people are reading us online um, and they might be coming to us really separate from everything else that we do. So when we were back in the world of print, Everything was curated to sort of be delivered in, in in one fell swoop, as it still is in the book review. But now online, we're reviewing things that people might have come upon on social media or via search. So we're really more mindful of that larger audience, um, and then we're also part of a larger desk now is how we refer to it at the new york times where we also work together or in conjunction with the daily critics the staff critics for the new york times as well as the news and features reporting and the the publishing industry reporting on books uh, for the new york times so we're all together it's a nice really well staffed smart group of book people core book people and so that that that's the biggest change i would say just in terms of how we operate
2: now, a couple of years ago, Book TV took a tour of the New York Times book review section at the New York Times office. You can watch that online. You could simply search Pamela Paul at booktv.org. But back to your book, A Hundred Things We've Lost to the Internet. This is a quote from your book. You are either an ally or you are the enemy. In the world of enforced popular opinion, few will dare risk saying something that falls into the muddy middle something that may lead to a vitriolic pile-on from all corners, both known and distressingly anonymous. It looks like we're speaking up and speaking out, but most opinions are relentlessly held in check by the crowd. We all play it safe. What were you driving at?
1: So that's from a chapter called Unpopular Opinions, which is something that is gone um, or at least really difficult to have, um, certainly online you can hear a lot of people in conversation say things like, well, I can never say this publicly or no one will write this or no one will say this, but, or please don't tell anyone or within the vault. Um, I think that what happens when you are constantly observed and under scrutiny in terms of what you say and what you write, um, you tend to be more guarded um, and that's natural. I mean, one of the other things that's lost to the internet is uninhibitedness. Um, It's, like the internet has turned us all into reality TV stars or celebrities, but without the, you know, the 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 fortune and the good looks, insofar as we're all constantly being observed and judged and documented and that makes us, I think, fearful of taking the kinds of risks that you might take um, if you weren't in that kind of setting. And I'll I'll bring this down to a very granular level for young people, because I think that this is shaping the way in which um, people develop, kids develop, as thinkers, as individuals. So in many schools, for example, now they work in what's called a Google doc or shared doc. um, And it means that you're not alone with a piece of paper in a room, developing your thoughts as you are developing as a person, let's say you're 15 years old, you are instead online on a network computer in a shared doc. And this is done under the name of collaborative learning and 21st century skills. And perhaps there's some truth to that. It's also a lot of marketing um, on the behalf of those who sell these uh, programs and computers to schools. Um, But what it means is that all the kids, like let's say you're on a team of four kids who are joint working, collaborating on an essay. It means that rather than kind of develop your own ideas, you're in there with, let's say, a kid who hates you, um, the know-it-all kid in the classroom, um, and someone who's intensely competitive with you personally. Um, and so they are all commenting and reacting to what you're writing in real time. That means you might not write the same way that you would if you were all alone in that room with a pen and paper. So I think it's really shaping the fact that 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 because we are so constantly subject to other people's eyes and opinions, and they aren't always kind, Um, it's, it's shaping the way in which we express ourselves.
2: Another thing we've lost to the internet, and this is a pet peeve of mine as well, quote, the appearance of new words and meanings and spellings in casual use is accelerating, even as our grasp of more formal language and grammar withers away.
1: Yeah. What do you mean by that? What do you miss? Um, The period is obviously on the way out, but what what bothers you in online writing?
2: Where's the comma? Where is the comma?
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, punctuation is sort of seen as fussy. It's very fussy to punctuate, to capitalize letters and to use a period is, you know, all but a slap in the face. Like, and, and I think all of us have sensed this. We, we've all become this way in our writing. Even those people who are olds, um, who are you know post digital natives, um, who came to the internet when they were fully formed adults, who had already learned how to write. And that is, if you write in an email "thank you" and end it with a period, and you send it, or if you if you've got an email that said "thank you" with a period, the way that reads is "thanks a lot," "thanks a lot," really. You know, it, it doesn't feel um, genuine. It doesn't feel enthusiastic unless you end it with an exclamation point. And, and this is very hard, I think, for all of us who learned growing up as writers to be very sparing and judicious about the use of the exclamation point. It's almost like a total reverse um, when you're writing online. It's be really careful about using one of those periods.
2: And we're talking on the About Books podcast with Pamela Paul Every year the New York Times lists their top books. Let's begin with Clint Smith, How the Word Is Passed: A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America.
1: So this book is, um, it's, it's a really interesting format. It's looking at, I mean, the title is very uh, telling because it is, it's about oral history in many ways. It's about how our stories are told um, about our past. And he is looking primarily at race. Um, and he goes to uh, a number of different locations, mostly in the U.S., but also in Africa, um, that in some way... Um, Tell the story of our nation's past. So there's two different former plantations, which are operated in very different ways. Um, He goes to um, New York City, which many people don't think of when they think about slavery and talks about the way in which uh, slavery uh, took place. Um, in this city and the way in which its history is represented now. And a lot of what he's looking at, again, is just how do we tell these stories? Who tells the stories? How do we tell the stories? How do our stories get told?
2: Andrea Elliott, Invisible Child, Poverty, Survival, and Hope in an American City is another best nonfiction book of 2021, according to the New York Times.
1: So Andrea Elliott is a colleague of mine. Um, She is a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter at The Times, and she did a series on a young woman named Dasani, who was then actually a girl. She was 11 years old, and she was experiencing homelessness with her family in New York City. And um, Andrea used her story to really illustrate just how difficult it is to get by in a large city, whether it's this one or another one, in this country, given the way in which our institutions are structured. Um, And so she it's a narrative story about Dasani and about her family, um, but it is telling a larger story about how our cities serve their populations.
2: Now, Pamela Paul, every time Annette Gordon-Reed writes something, she seems to win an award for it. Her most recent is on Juneteenth.
1: So this is a, a short book. Um, it's a series of essays. She modeled it on um, the writing of James Baldwin. And I think you you really see that in the book. It's about Juneteenth, which, of course, is a relatively new holiday for many people, but is um, a holiday that's original to Texas, which is where Gordon Reed grew up. And she tells the story of this celebration, which celebrates the end of slavery in in this country. And specifically, it's when the news got to Texas, which arrived rather late, um, and that has subsequently become popular outside of Texas. So it's about that holiday or feelings around that holiday and that celebration. It's also about her experience growing up in Texas um, as a Black child who ended up going to a largely white school um, and about her own experiences of racism and education and opportunity. But what moved me most about this book is that it's really a story, it's sort of a companion piece in a way to Clint Smith's book. It's the story of how we tell history as historians and what the historian's job is and responsibility. And as a former history major in college i really appreciated the fact that she she really focuses on the on the truth <laughs> that history is something you cannot bend to your will. Um, You need to really do the research and look at the facts and tell the story that the facts show and not the story that you wish the facts showed, the story that you wish would be told, um, the stories that we tend to mythologize or change to suit a political purpose. Um, And so I felt like it was a really also a very beautiful and succinct defense and explanation of the art of history.
2: Have you ever had Professor Gordon Reed on your podcast?
1: She has. Yeah, she's been. She came on the podcast to talk about this book, and, and it was great. So,
2: and she was uh, Book TV's in-depth guest last June, and during that interview, we learned that a elementary school in her hometown, I believe it's Tyler, Texas, has been named after her, which I thought was oh like, wow was kind of a neat thing. What was it about Heather Clark's book Red Comet that attracted?
1: So this is a biography that I think is around 1000 pages. I can't remember if it's a little bit more, or a little bit less. And so um, I think that that feels daunting and surprising to those who know that um, Sylvia Plath, the poet and uh, fiction writer, um, died in her early 30s, of course, Probably the one thing most people know about her is that she died by suicide. And you think, well, how could there possibly be this long a biography about such a short life? And what really impressed editors at the Book Review read the book is that she... Heather Clark pulls it off. She makes a case for why Sylvia Plath was important. It's not one of those biographies that goes into every single minutia of every fiber on every sweater that Sylvia Plath um, wore, but that really uses that space to explain the work that she did to defend her standing as an artist in her own right and also to really look at her within the context of her times. And again, the other fact that people most know about Sylvia Plath is that she was married to the poet Ted Hughes and that she is often thought of, you know, in that relationship. And this is a book in which Sylvia Plath really stands on her own.
2: And finally, the fifth book on the New York Times five best nonfiction books of 2021, Tova Ditlofsson, The Copenhagen Trilogy.
1: Yes, and I want to mention very quickly the names of the two translators, which is uh, Tina um, Tina Nonaly and Michael Favola goldman um, because this is a book in translation. It was written in Danish and it was written quite a while ago, but only now translated into English and published as three books, although it's actually, I'm sorry, it's published as one book, but it is actually three books. It's Childhood, Youth, and Dependency. And I was really surprised by this book. I was surprised by how magnetic, an original, um, the writing, the voice is, um, this person is so vibrantly alive. Tova Didlobson was, uh, very famous in her native, um, Country, um, but uh not 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 as well known here, but grew up very poor, working class. Um, this is sort of before the ideal, you know, the Nordic ideal of a kind of uh socialist paradise, Scandinavia. There wasn't much of a social safety net. Um, she did not have an easy childhood. And she's one of those writers who does what um So many writers try to do when writing a a coming of age memoir, but she don't always do it well, which is that she really does bring you back to that time and that mindset. You just think this is a this is a six year old writing. This is a 10 year old telling this story. She's able to recapture that feeling um, of being young and powerless. And um, and the third book, uh, Dependency, you might wonder, well, what is that title? She becomes horrifically addicted to drugs Um, and it it happens I get goosebumps just saying that Um, it's it I want to say it's not her fault it's never anyone's fault but um, in this case um, she is married to someone who purposefully um, gets her addicted physically very addicted to drugs and it's about her struggle with that addiction Um, and I would say taken all together it is also really the portrait of an artist and of a writer coming of age and seeing that development and seeing um, the obstacles that were in her path.
2: And that was the Copenhagen Trilogy. Tova Ditlevson is the author. Pamela Paul is a New York Times Review book editor. We really appreciate you joining us on our About Books podcast. Your own podcast is called what?
1: Book Review Podcast.
2: There you go. Thanks for being with us.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
2: Well, we talked about a couple of the New York Times notable books of 2021 with Pamela Paul, but here's a couple more. Journalist AL Press reports on the occupational hazards that come with being an essential worker in America. Bloomberg Businessweek tech reporter Max Chafkin looks at the life of Silicon Valley investor and entrepreneur Peter Thiel. The book is called The Contrarian. Pulitzer Prize-winning critic Louis Manon offers his thoughts on the Cold War cultural exchange between the U.S. and Europe in his book, The Free World. Another New York Times notable book of 2021, The Chancellor. This is Cati Martin's look at the life of German Chancellor Angela Merkel. And Columbia University linguistics professor John McWhorter weighs in on race in America in woke racism. Now, Mr. McWhorter recently discussed his book during a virtual event hosted by the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, and here's a portion of that.
0: This is not a right-wing black book, especially because I'm not of the right wing. What it's for is really mostly people left of center who are listening to these voices from the radical hard left and beginning to get a feeling that somehow those people's view must be actual truth rather than one facet of the left. Out of fear, because there's a certain kind of person who now basically tells you that you're a racist, i.e. what we now think of as a moral pervert, if you disagree with what is actually a very narrow, underthought, and punitive range of views. I think that what we need is left of center, but constructive and unself-concerned positions on what Black people need in this country.
2: And that's John McWhorter discussing his most recent book, Woke Racism. It was a New York Times notable book for 2021. Now, you can watch Mr. McWhorter's entire program at any time by visiting our website, booktv.org, and searching his name or the book's title. And you're listening to and watching About Books. This is Book TV's podcast and program looking at publishing news and the latest nonfiction books. Well, each week on our author interview program afterwards top non-fiction authors talk about their latest books with relevant guest hosts. In case you missed them, we want to take a moment to list some of the notable conversations that occurred on Afterwards this past year. A reminder that you can watch any of these programs online at booktv.org or listen to them as a podcast. Just download C-SPAN's app, C-SPAN Now. Well, at the beginning of the year, New York Times op-ed columnist Charles Blow made his case for African-Americans to amass political power and challenge white supremacy. He spoke with author and Woodson Center founder and president Robert Woodson. Then in April, Cindy McCain reflected on her life with her late husband, Senator John McCain. She was joined in conversation by former Senator Joe Lieberman, who was a very close friend of the late senator. In June, former New York Police Department Commissioner Bill Bratton talked about policing in America. He discussed his book, The Profession, with former Philadelphia Police Commissioner Charles Ramsey. And this summer, author and podcast host Ben Shapiro argued America's progressive left is pushing an authoritarian agenda. He was interviewed by nationally syndicated radio talk show host Eric Metaxas. Well, in another Afterwards that we featured this past year, it was in October, and it was Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Ferris Stockman talking about how U.S. companies moving overseas have impacted America's working class. She was joined in conversation by Alyssa Quart, who is the executive editor of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. And coming up this weekend on Afterwards, it's Republican Congressman Jim Jordan of Ohio talking about his new book. In it, he discusses the investigations by Congress during his time on the House Judiciary and Oversight Committees, and he also reflects on the Trump presidency. He was interviewed by former Congressman Dave Bratt of Virginia, and here's a preview of that conversation.
0: No one has faced the intense uh, opposition and attacks that President Trump did, and he did, we t- talk about the title of the book, he did more of what he said he would do than any president in our lifetime, and he did it with everyone against him. Every Democrat in this town was against him. Every uh, uh, everyone in the mainstream press in this town was against him. Everyone in the bureaucracy was against him, and a bunch of Republicans were against him. And in spite of that, he he said he would cut taxes, and he did. He said he would reduce regulation, and he did. He said we'd have an amazing economy. And we did for all demographics in our economy. I mean, African-Americans, real wages up. Hispanic, all Americans, real, real wages went up. So uh, he said he put conservatives on the court, and he did. Gorsuch, uh, Kavanaugh, Coney Bear. He said he'd get out of the Iran deal. He did. He said he would put, uh, uh, put the embassy in Jerusalem, and he did. He said he would build the wall, and he did. And you can just keep going.
2: And that was Congressman Jim Jordan of Ohio talking about his new book, you can watch the entire interview this Sunday when Afterwards airs in its entirety. All Afterwards programs are also available as podcasts. You can get them on the C-SPAN app, C-SPAN Now. And finally, here's a roundup of some of the best-selling nonfiction books of 2021. Heather McGee examines the cost of racism for all Americans in her book, The Sum of Us. In The Codebreaker, biographer Walter Isaacson looks at Jennifer Doudna, who invented a DNA editing technology. And best-selling author Malcolm Gladwell examines the development of precision bombing during World War II, his book, The Bomber Mafia. And in How I Saved the World, Fox News commentator Jesse Waters provides a critique of left-wing activists and their policies. And wrapping up our look at some of the best-selling books of 2021 It's the Washington Post's Bob Woodward and Robert Costa's report on the transition between the Trump and Biden administrations. Their book, which came out this fall, was called Peril. Now, all of these authors have appeared on Book TV. You can watch their programs anytime at our website, booktv.org. And that's this week's publishing news and the latest nonfiction books. Thanks for joining us on About Books. About Books is available as a podcast at C-SPAN Now, which is our new app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Happy holiday season to you. We'll be back in January with another episode of About Books.